My name's Bubba Norton, and I'm on a journey. I'm looking for some real people. Want to hear some real stories. Want to ask some real questions. Get some real answers. Trying to find some spiritual solutions for chemical problems. This is my podcast. Here I am, keeping it real. Hello, thank you for turning in. My name is Bubba Norton, and this is Here I Am, Keeping It Real. I'm going to start by reading a little excerpt from this book. This book combines extensive research in science and spirituality to shift the paradigm on fear. But I am just one man. It would be arrogant of me to assume I could single-handedly transform our understanding of fear, a word so ingrained in our collective consciousness in such an unfavorable manner. Instead of attempting the losing battle of transforming fear from a negative to a positive connotation, I chose instead to create a new word to give us a new perspective. And that word is fearvana. It was created by his wife. He goes on to say, fearvana is a slate. It has no past conditioning to affect it. Planting this fearvana seed in our brain allows us to build new associations so we are no longer victimized by the effect priming has had on us regarding fear or any other negative emotion. The next time fear shows up, just tell yourself, fear is just one step away from fearvana. Let that thought drive you forward. And those words come from the book Fearvana. The author Akshay Nanavati is a former United States Marine. He served his country in Iraq. He has climbed the Himalayas and he crossed the ice cap in Greenland on foot. And here is with us today. Akshay, thanks for coming on, brother. Thank you for having me, brother. I appreciate you. You know, uh, we were talking earlier and I told you I heard I was driving down the road one day and um, I was, li- I-, I love Mike Ritland's podcast, Mike. Hey, uh, and I heard he was talking to you and I went, Oh my gosh, this book sounds right up my alley. And I literally ordered the book in five minutes and oh, honored brother. Yeah. And you know what? The next day the book is on my front porch. It's, <laughs> it's that easy these days. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the book changed my life. Uh, I've had a chance to listen mm-hmm. to you on two or three podcasts and mm-hmm. read your book. I know a lot about you. Uh, why don't we start off by having you introduce yourself tell everybody about yourself and how this book came about. Sure. Yeah. I'll kind of share a little bit about what led me to the concept and the ethos of Fearvana. And when I'm looking back, you know, I would say that path really began when I moved to the U.S. I was born in India, moved to the U.S. at 13, uh, lived in four cities by the time I was 13. And soon after moving here, I got very heavily into drugs, into alcohol, and was in a pretty dark place. I was very self-destructive. I used to cut myself, burn myself. I still have these scars on my arm from these days and did a lot of things that sometimes I wonder how I made it out alive, but thankfully I did. And the turning point for me back then was watching the movie Black Hawk Down. I don't know if you've, you've seen that. I have. I have. I've yeah. seen it. Great movie. Great movie. Very powerful war movie based on a true story. And so watching th- that movie and watching the courage of men who voluntarily sacrificed their lives for their fellow human beings and gave their lives to somebody else, it just triggered something in me that what kind of people have that kind of courage? You know, who, who would do that? And I remember right after watching the movie, I started reading book. I read the book Black Hawk Down and started reading book after book after book on military and life and combat. 
And war became this idea, just simply reading about it, of war, you know, experiencing the spectrum of the human experience uh, at the very edges allows you to experience all, um, all aspects of the human condition. So in the sense of war brings out the very worst of, the human of humanity. We see awful things, atrocities, horrors of war, but we also see people sacrificing their lives, jumping on grenades, doing, doing things to give up everything for somebody else. And so almost overnight, I stopped doing drugs and decided I want to go into such an environment. I want to go into an environment where you live for the good of the group. Your well-being doesn't matter in the Marines. What matters is your men and your mission. Whoa. So almost overnight, stopped doing drugs, decided to join the Marines. It took me about a year and a half to get in the Marines because I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me in boot camp. Mm -hmm. So I had to kind of fight my way to the Marines and get all the medical waivers. And so all these things started to first teach me the beauty of fear, the beauty of stress, the beauty of suffering, the beauty of pain. Because before this, I had, I mean, I had great family, no trauma, childhood, like parents love me. I'm super close to them to this day. You know, I never really tasted the, the gift of suffering, if you will. And so now I'm seeking it out. So Marine boot camp was obviously hard, especially for someone who just came out of drugs, all these disorders. I wasn't very fit at the time. But for after joining the Marines, I, I got into mountain climbing, cave diving, skydiving, rock climbing, just exploring nature and testing myself in every single way I could find uh, to challenge myself and to explore my fears. Then in 2007, I was deployed to Iraq as an infantry non-commissioned officer. And among many jobs I had out there, one of my jobs was to walk in front of our vehicles looking for bombs yeah. before they could kill me and my fellow Marines. Mm -hmm. And so you learn once again how to navigate fear, how to navigate adversity and all of that, you know, and ultimately it was a tremendous life experience, of course, intense, but tremendous life experience. But when I came back is when I kind of faced the toughest battles that eventually then led me to fear of honor. I'd lost a buddy of mine in the war, lost, I've lost a couple of junior Marines to suicide. And when I came back, I just, I didn't, I couldn't handle life in this normal world. I struggled. I struggled with survivor's guilt. I struggle with the, the mundane life in this world, and I wanted to go back to war. There's a lot of simplicity in a time of war when all you have to worry about is live, living and dying and your men. You know, there's a simplicity to that life. There's an adrenaline rush to that life that the mundane world cannot replicate. Mm -hmm. And so I started drinking and started drinking heavily. I mean, I was still in college, but eventually the drinking got to a point, man, I was like drinking like a bottle of vodka a day. Mm -hmm. I would drink till I pass out, wake up and drink till I again. And this would go on for five, six, seven days until – Man, I've been at a point in my life that I would be literally over the toilet throwing up. And then as soon as I'm done, pick up a bottle and just drink yeah. again. Like it's dark times, you know, dark times mm -hmm. being there. Um, and one, one, one morning after one of these binge sessions, I was on the cusp of suicide. I was about to pick up a knife and just uh, slit my own wrist. Yeah. That's so and cool. that was kind of rock bottom, man. That's when I started, you know, uh, delving into the research, into the neuroscience, the psychology, the spirituality to figure out initially just to heal myself, to navigate my own demons. But obviously, it led me on this far deeper path to figure out how do we all, because obviously, I'm not the only person that suffered. Everybody suffers in their own way. So how do we all navigate this experience of human suffering? And how do we find the gift in it? And that's what led me to this idea of fear of honor, you know, like fear and nirvana, two seemingly contradictory concepts mm -hmm. that are actually very complementary. And that fear and suffering and, and stress can be an access point to bliss and enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of turning my life around, I've obviously now sobered up. Um, I've done things like I, I run ultra marathons. I do things like just a couple of weeks ago in the, in the, in the quarantine, I ran 50 miles around a cul-de-sac. I saw that. I saw yeah. that. <laughs> <Nuts>. <laughs> I do some, yeah. I do some pretty intense things now. I've built a global business, written this book, and uh -huh. now in a pretty good space, but it's been quite a journey, brother. It's Man, it's, it's a fascinating book. And we were talking earlier and I was telling you what I loved about your book because several of the things you talk about in the book, some of the, uh, procedures and the methods you mentioned, you know, I, I sobered up in a 12 step room and, and, mm. uh, 
and uh, we went down similar paths, man. When you were talking yeah. about drinking till you're vomiting and then drinking some more, mm. a lot of people listening to this podcast will be very familiar with that. Yeah. And, um, dark place, man. It is. It is. And the purpose of this podcast is to help find people uh, alternatives to that. You know, number one, alternatives. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you take a connotation, you, something similar to, to Mike drop, you know, he trains dogs and uh, a friend of mine, when people tell me, say, Hey, I'm just going to quit drinking. And they simply just try to stop without replacing it with anything. It never works. And a Absolutely. sponsor, a sponsor, my sponsor told me one time, and it, this is what made me think of Mike Ritland. Uh, he said he was fussing because his dog, his wife had bought a puppy. Right. Mm. And uh, I said, why don't you like puppies? He goes, well, they're always chewing on my shoes and crapping on the floor. And I said, okay, what'd you do? He said, I bought a book. I said, what'd the book say? The book said, you can't teach a puppy what not to do. You have to teach a puppy what to do. Mm. Can't take, don't hit the puppy with the shoe, find it something better to chew on. And lots of people are out there that. when you simply take away the alcohol and the drugs, there's no sustainability because it hasn't been replaced. Yeah. And, um, I spend a lot of time in 12 steps room. I do a lot of adventure work. I spend time with several people, uh, mm. battling this disease and 12 step rooms don't work for everybody, you know? Yeah. And yeah. for me, somebody has been in there. I like stuff to supplement. I want a little bit more information. Yeah. I love and, that you do that, man. And that's what I found in your book. And that's what was so appealing to me. And so, yeah. uh, that was what I was like, holy cow, I would just love to grill this guy for four or five hours. I know we don't have that much time, but I just wanted to go through it and uh, have you discuss a couple of these things that you sure. do in there so people can get a taste and yeah. um, see what kind of discussion we could lead to from there, my brother. Absolutely, brother. Yeah, happy to go wherever because, yeah, I know what it's uh, uh, know what's like and anything I can do to help, man, to get get people out of that. And I couldn't agree with you more, man, that that you can't just feel that. Like I've lost a couple of friends to addiction uh, and it's same thing to your point. You know, they'd come out and they would just they're not replace it with something and that right. void cannot be cannot be left there. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, you're inevitably going to go back, you know, and it's not just it's not just like a. A, a random concept to say you're never going to go, go back. Like that's kind of how the brain works. You know, in the book mm -hmm. I talk about the Nobel prize winning psychologist who said the natural state of the brain is laziness. So mm -hmm. we are naturally wired to go to the easiest course of action. And if you think about it, evolutionary speaking, we lived in a world where stress and life stress, like life stressors were constant. If mm -hmm. you look at archaic world, right? When man was evolved, uh, that we had constant stressors. So we were wired to seek out comfort because comfort was not the norm. Wow. Comfort was, yeah. the re was the release from the norm, mm -hmm. you know, so we're wired to go look for that uh, because there's constant dangers and, and our brain is still designed for a caveman, cave world like brain. It's right. not designed for this modern world in, in a world full of com excess comfort, excess, excess everything, you know, with, mm -hmm. uh, with, with too much excess and too much comfort. We're not wired for that. Right. And, which is part of the reason why, among others, but part of the reason why we see people delve into it. So we got to fill that with what I call the worthy struggle. Yes, yes. And, and, and I read that in your book and it just sent this mind of mine to scrambling because at first I go on, you know, what was he talking about? And the f crazy example of that, it doesn't pertain to people. Let's go back to dogs for a second. Um, yeah. Um, I had a dog one time, smartest dog in the world. Smart. At the same time, I had a pet rattlesnake. Now, let's don't go down that rabbit hole. But, but I, <laughs> I have love one. reptiles. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, it eventually died, and I'd taken that snake out of the cage, and for some reason, my dog came in the room. 
she saw that snake and she had never seen a snake before, you know, mm. certainly never been bitten by one, but she caught mm. one glimpse of that snake and she, I haven't seen her since. So mm. something somehow, and I think it's going back to what you're talking about, our primal instinct. Yep. Yep. That that's a snake. Those aren't good for me. I'm getting out of here. So yeah, what you're saying in your book is that man has those same things sort of pre-wired in there and they've been handed down genetically, correct? Absolutely. They did this study with people in the Arctic, with Inuit people in the Arctic who had never seen a snake before in their life. They live in the Arctic. And mm -hmm. first time they saw a snake, they were terrified, yeah. you know? And so like there's, there's different misconceptions on, on people say different things about what we're born, how some people say we're, we're not born with that any fear where le we learn fears, mm -hmm. but that's not entirely accurate. They've done mm -hmm. the study where, babies they put a baby with two tables and they put a glass between the tables and the babies were scared to walk across the glass because they, it, it was a falling you know ah. and some weren't some were mm -hmm. so people are born wired with different kinds of fears you know and every fear has an evolutionary construct even though mm -hmm. they might seem opposing so for example i might be afraid of tight spaces evolutionary that makes sense if i'm in a cornered space something could kill me and I'm also, I'm all, evolutionary people are also afraid of open spaces. That also makes sense because open spaces means some, like a lion could hunt you down, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. the point is that in my research, I have come to find that there, it's our general perception on innate fears are not entirely accurate. The innate mm -hmm. fears, there's no one universal. It's not like there's a magic formula saying every human being is born with either no innate fears. And some people say there's only two, two innate fears, the fear of falling and the fear of falling backwards. I've heard mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. of loud noises. But in my research, in my experience, that's not entirely true. It's, it kind of varies in the human condition. And the point ultimately is the whole ethos of Fairvana is it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter what the fear is. It doesn't matter what you're born with. It doesn't matter what you learn fear is. None of that matters. What matters ultimately is what you do with it. And mm -hmm. so the key thing is letting go of the fear of fear and accepting that the isness of stuff just shows up. Like right. fear is going to be there. Doubt's going to be there. The struggle's going to be there. It's what we do with it that matters. Yeah. And that's where people, you know, when we mentioned earlier that people had to learn to replace that the alcohol or something because fears yeah. ultimately and those emotions are ultimately the issues which send us down that path and if we yeah. don't have any new tricks or have more tools in our tool chest you know i i read your book and i went through a similar episode pretty close to suicide myself mm -hmm. one time mm -hmm. hit a bottom found out that i really didn't want to kill myself at all but mm -hmm. it was just i didn't have in my mind, mm -hmm. I didn't have but like one or two options. So, right, you know, right. I'm like, okay, well, I can, I can kill myself. Well, I don't want to do that. And I'm like, well, what else am I going to do? And there weren't a whole lot of other options until I started yeah. working this program. And your book certainly provides more options, you know, yeah. more tools in our tool chest. Now you're like, no, I don't have to kill myself. I can read this book and I can do the stuff that's yeah. suggested in there. I can do this. I can do that. So it's about creating options. But it's like you said, that fear is going to be there. And for an alcoholic and a drug addict, it's dangerous, you know, and the uh, fear, you know, sometimes, and you talked about this in your book, some of our fears are so subconscious and it sounds as if, you know, sometimes I'll wake up and I go, man, I'm just not in a good mood and I don't know why. Yeah. You know, there's just stuff boiling. Nothing's happened to me. But reading your book, it made me wonder, man, because you, know, you do such a great job of explaining the different parts of the brain and how that brain works. And my subconscious could be thinking about stuff that I'm not even aware of. Exactly. It's feeling one way and I'm feeling another way. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, I did a ton of research for this book just because, like I said, it was initially just my own healing, you know, to navigate where I was at. And I came to learn that neuroscience and spirituality both have shown, proven 
that we don't control most of what happens in our brain. Most of right. what happens in our brain is our subconscious. Mm -hmm. But the problem is we get attached to that identity. We, we start to like, so when I go through an emotion, people say like, I am depressed. I am scared. Like I am sad. I am uh, uh, anxious. And then it becomes our self-identity. But that's crazy. I mean, when we get in a car, we don't say I am that car. If the mm -hmm. car, something happens, it doesn't, like the car gets hit. We're not saying it gets hit me. But why? Mm -hmm. Because we know that car is separate from us. Right. But with our subconscious, we don't do that. And it's nobody's fault. We've never been taught that. And exactly. we always hear things. We always hear things. So many people in the, I mean, it frustrates me to no end, brother, because it's so destructive when people, some of the top dogs in the quote unquote self-help personal development world, mm -hmm. they demonize fear. They say things like be fearless. Don't be yeah. scared. We attach words like disorder to anxiety and stress. And mm -hmm. I'll give you a very concrete example. See, when I came back from the war, right, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. Now they said, because I had things like survivor's guilt, because I was jumpy with loud noises, because I didn't like crowds. Mm -hmm. These were symptoms that they said, okay, you have these symptoms, which means you have post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. But as I started to learn about the brain, I realized that, look, that's not a disorder. That's a normal human response to war. I mean, I spent seven months in a war zone where my brain said loud noises can kill you. You better be hyper alert. Yeah, so survivor's guilt is not something only veterans feel. Anybody, mm -hmm. like that survivor's guilt is just an expression of love. Anybody who's lost somebody is going to often ask that question. Why me? Why do I get to live? You know, exactly. and so it's not—it's not a disorder. It's a normal human res response to mm -hmm. to war, to life. But yes. we attach words like disorder. We 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 become that, and that's mm -hmm. what I had to do. Like what I came to learn is that post-traumatic stress is not indicative of post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. Post-traumatic stress can just as easily lead to post-traumatic growth, but it's in the space between the subconscious and my conscious response that I get to decide what I do with that. Now, for mm -hmm. a long time, I was in the darkness that I didn't know there was a space. I wasn't aware there was a space and sure. I was getting attached to my stuff. I was getting attached mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. And eventually I learned that even the darkness can have meaning. Like as an example of that, for a long time, hell, I have this right here, brother. Check, like this is a picture of my friend that I lost in the war. I want to talk JKP. about him. I want to talk yeah, we'll, about him. We'll yeah, we'll go there too. And you know, I had this picture up for a long time and it says, this should have been you. Earn oh. this life. Wow. That's an wow. intense thing to look at every single yeah. day. Absolutely. But only recently, now I have this folder, but I no longer have this poster up on my wall. Only recently did I change the words to say, honor his death, earn this life. Because wow. the guilt, it mm -hmm. worked for me until it did not. And that's mm -hmm. what we got to realize. Like guilt wasn't a bad emotion. Everybody mm -hmm. said, don't feel guilty. Don't feel guilty. And, and the, the point is we always do this. We say, don't worry. Don't stress. Don't feel guilty. Don't be scared. Feel what you feel. You got to yeah. engage the feeling, understand mm -hmm. the feeling. So I, my guilt worked for me. And then I realized I got to a point where it was just, it was too much, man. It was just mm -hmm. too much. So I changed it to honor his death or in this life. So the thing is though, we got to recognize that there's no bad or good emotions. Every emotion has its place. It's there for a reason and most, and any way we don't control what's happening in the subconscious. So mm -hmm. we got to let go of that self-identity and say, I'm not this emotion. This emotion is not who I am. I am more. I can be more. And, and, and that's what was so beautiful to me about your book. Cause I got an experience. I'm going to share with my personal experience. I think yeah, please. it covers over uh, just two couple aspects of what you're talking about. Number one, when you talk about, I am not this emotion, I am not that yeah. thing. Whenever I'm spending time with people, I'll run to some people, you know, they were totally a victim, you know, of a horrible, mm -hmm. several, for instance, you read in your book, sexual abuse, tax, physical mm -hmm. assaults, all types. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they say, I'm a horrible person because this happened to me, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and you spend a lot of time saying, that's not who you are. That's what yeah. happened. That took yeah. place. Who you are is somebody totally different but it's like yeah. you said we attach ourselves to that event or we yeah, attach ourselves to an emotion yep. which we have all learned is not permanent 
right? And yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. You can't say, oh, I should, you know, if I don't, if I'm depressed or, and, and I start fighting that, it just intensifies. You yeah. know what I mean? If yeah. I take a step back and go, hey, man, this is going to leave shortly, you know, or as your book suggests, find another meaning for that emotion, a more positive exactly meaning for that emotion now i can use it towards my benefit not just exactly. survive it but grow through it which would be exactly hugely beneficial but back to you know i remember um when i first so you know i've i, I ain't had a drink since 87 but i ended up i trained a lot of martial arts and uh was injured in 98 or 99 had three herniated discs in my neck the doctor gave me Damn. a prescription for six percocet a day and Next Damn. thing you know, I'm eating 60 or 70 pain pills a day for 10 years. And oh my God. Yeah. How I'm alive, I don't know. But anyway, uh, was clean off of those for about a year and um, was divorced and had one weekend mm -hmm. that I had my two kids with me, two daughters, right? And mm -hmm. we were coming back with one of their friends from a great day out in the town. We went to a volleyball tournament they were playing in, went and got pizza dropped their friend off and I was leaving that neighborhood and this guy, evidently I didn't go through the red light quick enough. And, uh, man, he pulled up beside me, started threatening me and cussing me and then pulled off. Mm -hmm. Right. And before I knew it, and I promise you, I didn't realize what I had done. I had chased that guy about six miles down the road, you know, mm -hmm. and I was going to pull him out of that car mm -hmm. and it was real. And I mm -hmm. really did not realize what I had done and it just terrified, you know, my girls and it should have, it yeah. should have, you know, yeah. and your book made me think about that because I don't do that often, but it made yeah. me think, you know, in your book, you said, you know, years ago we were scared of tigers and that type of fear yeah. is still there. And every once yeah. in a while, something might trigger that yeah. same amount of fear, even though there's yeah. not a tiger. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it gives you a, you know, you beat yourself up for behavior like that, right? Yeah. You go, Man, I'm a, I can't believe I did that. And the, your explanation of the book gives you a tiny bit of permission or an understanding where you can accept that. Yeah. But if you don't change in the future, you're not a victim anymore, right? You're a volunteer yeah. to do that stupid yeah. shit. And so Absolutely. you're like, this is where it comes from. I definitely yeah. don't want to do that again. Yeah. And so let's find something better to do or let's recondition that, uh, that brain path. And so, yeah. you know, we, we can constantly be growing, you know, otherwise you yeah. just do it every time. Right. Exactly. And that's all about that space, you know, that mm -hmm. space between the emotion and what you do. Cause it's okay to get angry, mm -hmm. like anger. It's okay to feel guilty. It's okay to feel scared. All these things are not bad emotions. But what most of the problem is most of us just react to the anger, react to the fear, react to the anxiety instead of consciously responding to it. So yes. what we need to do is practice building that space, yes. building that space between the emotion and our conscious response without, and this is where the very key, without demonizing the experience of the emotion. And mm -hmm. I'll give you another very concrete example of that. I was working with sure. this veteran friend of mine who uh, went to a therapist and the therapist said to him, you know, anger is just a choice. You need to stop feeling angry. And now the whole time he's feeling himself, what's wrong with me? If anger is a choice, what's wrong with me? Why am I feeling angry? Like, why am I? And, I, and I, he came to me and I said, dude, you need to ignore that nonsense. And look, there's a lot of, like, I work with some therapists, good people. But what I realized is that many of them are just playing from a really bad playbook. They're operating yeah. from a very bad playbook. Like, that's mm -hmm. a very flawed teaching and it's destructive. Mm -hmm. 
Because now what happens is this dude, he's hearing from a quote unquote expert that anger is just a choice. He needs to stop. So every time he doesn't stop, he thinks there's something wrong with him. And mm -hmm. I came to get to me. I said, look, that's, that's nonsense. Like that's, there's nothing wrong with you. What we need to do right now is not be, not try to resist the anger. Anger's not a choice. Right now, your brain has created a response to stimuli that mm -hmm. we, when, when some stimuli hap happens, that doesn't go your way. Your brain has learned to just respond with anger. Right. right now, you don't control that. Our goal initially is not to fight away the anger. In time, we can change that. But initially, mm -hmm. we don't control that. What we want to do is just pause and create that space. Right. So, for example, he called me. I remember one day he called me after like seven years after the war in Iraq, called me at like 1 a.m. And was just like, and he's so excited because the first time since the war, he did not let his anger get the better of him. His son had broken the DVD player or something like that. And, uh, and he just, he was practicing the stuff I was teaching him, which was I mean, like what I told him to do is when the anger shows up, I really want you to pause and label it. I don't want you to fight it. I don't want you to make it go away. I just want you to say I'm angry or I'm feeling angry. I just yeah. want you to notice it. Just sit with it. Be with it. I'm feeling angry. Talk to yourself. And so just by being with the emotion, now what he's doing is creating that space. Yeah. He's not reacting. He's saying, mm -hmm. okay, I'm, I'm feeling angry. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Let me, let me pause. Let me, let me like acknowledge the anger. And as a result, usually what he would do is the lawnmower didn't work. He'd read up the lawnmower. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> he'd me. respond. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we, yeah. we respond and now practicing that space. So that's kind of starting point, like a, a sort of starting point to build that space is practice labeling the emotion. Mm -hmm. Meditation is a great way to start building that space. And a really advanced technique is to actually train in the emotions you struggle with. And here's mm -hmm. what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. So I still, to this day, I sometimes will consciously watch war movies, just scenes from war movies, knowing they will make me cry. Like wow. I will tear up crying and I will watch like a scene from Black Hawk Down or Band of Brothers or Hacksaw Ridge. And I do that because I'm training in the emotion that I know. Because if, if somebody struggles with anger, put yourself consciously into moments of anger. So you are now consciously entering into that space. So you're training. How do I navigate this? It's like mm -hmm. if you want to get stronger biceps, what do you do? You go do bicep curls. If you want to get yep. stronger chest, you, do, you work your chest. So if you're struggling with anger, go train in anger. But instead mm -hmm. of letting anger show up and then you reacting to it, consciously put yourself in that space mm -hmm. in a controlled mm -hmm. environment. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and this is kind of like that higher advanced thing because you've got to be a little careful with it. Like mm -hmm. it, depending where you are on the journey, I don't advocate right. for anybody. And there's a strong caveat that's really, really important. Like not everybody should be going out there watching scenes from war movies knowing they will make them cry. Like yeah. I didn't, uh, cause that can send you into a pretty dark pit if you're mm -hmm, not careful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But this, that's what I mean by this is a more advanced technique. First, you got to build that space. Once I got, I didn't do this when I first started, like after a long time after I came back from the war, after I sobered up even, I never watched a war movie, man, because oh, like, like even when I did, when I, when I, when I first stopped drinking, I actually just made a decision to go to like moderate my drinking. And mm -hmm. for a little while I was moderating it, you know, I was pretty good. But man, like a trigger, like a war movie, boom, go right yeah. back into the pit, you know? And so eventually I said, look, I'm not very good at moderation. So I just stopped. Yeah. But, that, but now, like now I'm at a point that I can do that. You can train in the emotion. I can get there. But first you got to build a little bit of that space first. Yeah. Uh, but you got to like, yeah, you got you to put yourself in that space mentally and train in it. So it, your brain doesn't control you, but you control it. That's, and that's the power of meditation is learn to use your brain Roger, since your brain exactly. doesn't use you, right? Exactly. And the... Uh, the, the two things what I found in your book, because we both read Victor Frankl's book, powerful yeah, book, man's search for me, you know, yep. like man's greatest freedom lies in his ability to choose between choose stimulus gameplay. and response to choose how yes, to sir. respond. And for an alcoholic or a drug addict, that's huge immediately Everything. because, yeah. you know, a lot of times we take a drink before we realize it or our mind is already made up and there's no talking ourselves yeah. out of it. Um, yeah. When I was eating those pain pills, I couldn't tell you how many times, Akshay, I had four or five in my pocket 
right? Mm -hmm. And then I reached down for them and they were gone because I had taken them and wasn't even aware of them, right? They're gone. And so for an alcoholic or an addict, the first thing we try to do is build a gap between the stimulus and response, right? And yeah, the longer we have time to think it through and then the more tools we put in that gap, you know, I'm going to widen that gap and I'm going to put as yep. many alternatives as possible in that yep. gap. Look, I don't yep. take a drink. I got these six things right here exactly. that I can choose from. Right. Yeah. And so it's spreading that gap and creating options. And um, exactly. And, and it's huge, but it's like you said, you know, it, it does us no good to go. I'm scared and I'm ashamed because I'm scared. Exactly. You know, because yeah. Fear's there, you know, Nelson Mandela, you put it in your book. He said, man, courage, you know, <laughs> he said, courage is being scared and doing it anyway. Yeah, cur- like courage can't exist without fear. People sometimes frame fear and courage as two opposite things. They're no. not like, it, if, if me sitting here on my couch watching TV takes no courage. Right. Courage cannot exist unless there is fear and I practice mm-hmm. transcending that courage. So yeah, man, we got to feel what those uh, feelings are. And to, you know, to your point about uh, like when with an addict, a, a really mm-hmm. important step is to get clear on what your particular triggers are. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got different triggers. So for me, when I first started sobering up, because I, you know, uh, like, like my trigger was not, I could be in a room surrounded with people who were drinking. Mm-hmm. Like every single person in the room drinking, not gonna, I wouldn't even feel 0.01% of the nourish to drink. Right. But my trigger was being alone. Being mm. alone was when the, when the demon showed up. I mean, that's not the same for everybody. Some mm. people like, they, uh, and, and again, so we got to figure out what are our triggers mm-hmm. and then figure out why is that a trigger? So mm-hmm. being alone is what my, had my demons rise up. And my mm-hmm. de- so then I had to go into those spaces. I had to confront that. And mm-hmm. that's the hardest part, man, because when we are drinking, when we are you know, drugs, drinking, whatever, we're running away from something. At its core, that's what we're doing, right? We're running Mm -hmm. away from something. Mm -hmm. And so we got to figure out what is that thing. There's some buried pain in there that we got to go confront. And it's a hard journey going into those spaces. But on the other side is a tremendous freedom, man. It's a tremendous freedom, as you know, you know? Yeah, it's a huge freedom. And you know, the thing that's more dangerous, I'll tell you why this stuff is more important is, you know, predominantly in my work, and it's certainly my case in my family. I mean, uh, I was an alcoholic because I grew up in a family of alcoholics. There's mm-hmm. definitely a genetic component to it. There's a genetic predisposition well, to it. Yeah. And, you know, some people have a bad day. They go home, have a drink. They go to yeah. bed. I have yep. a tough day. I go home, have a drink. All bets are off. Right. right. I get so, you. You know, we have to uh, find we're, we're all guaranteed bad days or tough moments, yep. scary moments, angry moments, all the above. We need something else to do with them. It's more dangerous for an alcoholic to have a, a bad day and not have a plan B, you know? Exactly. Yeah. But what we get out of it and what people get out of it with your book is not only, oh, I'm going to do this just so I don't take a drink. No, it goes so much farther than that. Because once you start, it scares me to death to think that I was a never an alcoholic and mm. I never would have had a need to learn about this. Does that mm. make sense? Because yeah. it would make anyone's life much more fulfilling to, to have this at their disposal. You know, there's people out there who never took a drink and they're living with this amount of fear and anger yeah. and all these yeah. other emotions. And to them, it's just normal, you know, and, 
And, and that's more scarier to me than taking a drink. Yeah. Um, trust yeah. me on that. Uh, I feel you, brother. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, I think the, one of the biggest uh, misconceptions about mental health is the idea that mental health is somehow a state of equilibrium, of uh, normalcy, of happiness. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a deep flaw. And the truth is happiness is not the elimination of sadness. Happiness is the ability to find the gift in sadness. Wow. We, we think the idea should be we should be happy all the time. And even in, I mean, what, it's in the Bill of Rights, right? In the U.S., like the pursuit of happiness, right? That's uh-huh. what the goal is. But that's a flawed concept. And yeah. I get where it's coming from. It's coming from a good space, but it's a flawed concept because when we live in a paradigm that says we should pursue happiness, mm-hmm. we should pursue comfort, which is what modern culture does, right? Not just modern Western, modern culture is all about Let's get the things. Let's get these next things. Let's get that house. Let's get the car. Let's get the, all these things. Let's, and then we pursue happiness. I mean, it's fundamental to our ethos. But when we live with that ideology, with that ethos, then suffering, then pain becomes a barrier to that. Right, right. Now, suffering and pain is like, if, if I'm pursuing happiness, then suffering and pain is the opposition of that thing. Mm-hmm. But if instead, mm-hmm. if instead I say, I'm not going to pursue happiness, I'm going to pursue meaning. I'm going to pursue purpose. I'm going to pursue some mission. Yeah. Now, suffering is not a barrier to that. Suffering is a part of that. Like wow. with the Marines, when we're out on war, we know we are going to suffer. Ain't nobody going to Iraq and not suffering. I can guarantee yeah. you that. No, you're going absolutely. out there and you're going through some struggle. You're going through some adversity, but nobody's expecting it. Nobody's expecting us to not go through that. Like mm-hmm. we go out there knowing, shit, this is going to be hard at times, but we have a mission to do. We have a mission. And so the suffering is a part of the adventure. The mm-hmm. suffering is a learning. It's not some, it's not the antithesis. It's not the opposite of the goal. Wow. It's an wow. adventure. It's aligned with the goal. Mm-hmm. So at its very core, we got to stop expecting like that, that where that this is the biggest mistake with mental health and our approach to it collectively across the globe. In my experience is that we think mental health is somehow the opposition to sadness. It's, it's like it, it, mental health means I'm never going to be sad. I'm never going to be miserable. Yeah. That mental health means I'm just going to be like a static line. I'll be feel good, feel, feel good all the time. And that mm-hmm. is not how it is. No, We're going to have low moments. And, mm-hmm. and even when it comes to depression, like when, when I was navigating my own depression and now when I, when I talk to others and help others, people will say things like, and, and this, you got to watch out for us justifying and getting to that victim mindset. You know, people say things like, no, you don't get it. Depression is not sadness. Depression is a chemical reaction to the brain. So don't say my depression is sadness. You don't understand what it's like. Like when I'm depressed, I can't even move out of my bed and they'll get into this, this self-talk about it. Now, look, mm-hmm. I get it. I've been in that state. So I'm not, I'm not talking just from research. I'm talking from experience. Mm-hmm. I know what it's like to be in that state. But here's the thing. Depression, like any other emotion, like any other experience is, is just a set of chemicals in the brain. Sadnesses, happinesses, it's all a set of chemicals in the brain. But don't, what we do is, and I've seen people do this, is we'll justify, no, no, depression is not sadness. So like, oh, poor me, you know? And look, I can empathize. I'm not trying to say this to be like mean to somebody, but don't victimize yourself and say, oh, poor me. And mm-hmm. we do that because it, it's, it's some, there's something alluring about being a victim. It's comforting being a victim. And mm-hmm. I get it. I've been there, man. Mm-hmm. Oh, poor me, man. Shit. Like I didn't do, I didn't get, I didn't go through this. My, you know, I, I went through all this stuff. Poor me. Like, I, you know, sorry for myself kind of thing. And look, that's not going to get you anywhere. You know, mm-hmm. depression, like anything else, is a part of the human experience. It's not, we assign it as a mental health disorder. Mm-hmm. You're going to go through low moments. Like I work with this one young girl who was who labeled as depression because we live in a world that does that. Now she started saying to herself things like, I am depressed. I have depression. That became her self-identity. Yeah. It became who she was. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying things like, look, my brain goes through straight of depression from time to time, but I am not my brain and my brain is not me. I am not my brain. Like if there's one key takeaway, just remember this is that you are not your thoughts. You are not your feelings. You are not your experiences. Mm-hmm. You are the thinker of your thoughts, the feeler of your feelings and the experiencer 
of your wow. experiences. Wow. That's there is beautiful. that space, that yeah. space, man. And don't get attached. Like the highs and lows of life are all part of it. And it's worth it. Like nobody wants to live a boring static life. That's like this, you know, that's one line. It's the highs and lows. It's the lows that make the high that much, that much better. You know? So we, we gotta, we gotta navigate those lows and embrace those lows and find meaning even in the darkness. That's, that's beautiful. What you just said, I'm going to remember that forever. And, and you know, what you were talking about, goes back to what Victor Frankl talked about, you know, is yep. finding meaning in our suffering exactly. and that's man's purpose on this life. Exactly. And, and you're right. It's one thing to go through something. And initially you might be a victim, but if you don't take certain amount of action to get out of it, to address yeah. it, now, now you're just a volunteer, you know, you're like, I am choosing to suffer. I'm choosing to remain yep. this way. And, uh, uh, and and now it's 100% my fault. It's 100% yeah. my doings. Yeah. The uh, one question I was going to talk to you about, I know we need to be wrapping our time up here. You're a busy man. No, no, no. Uh, I got time. I got okay, some time. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Um, on one page of your book, when you were talking about the the label, the meaning, right, the LMNOP process, yep. which I love, I'm going to encourage everyone to go buy that book so they can find that process. Let me take a step back. I've got had a lady on the show recently, right? Mm -hmm. And, she had several years clean and she was really working a program, a good program. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't just fighting to stay sober. She was prospering. She was doing yeah. well. And yeah. uh, her daughter was murdered by her daughter's boyfriend. Damn, man. Jeez. Yeah. That's, it, that's it, terrible. Yeah. And that's you awful. can just, you could just imagine that pain and that agony. Right. Yeah. And um, sure enough, you know, it sent her off and, and she slipped back mm -hmm. into the drugs and alcohol and, mm -hmm. uh, the only way, which was the most powerful lesson, and the reason I made this podcast up is to find heroes like that. The only way she could say, man, the only way I'm ever get clean again is if I forgive that guy. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and wow. because to live with that much hate and that much, you know, I had a pastor on here uh, not too long ago. Well, I have several people. I got Buddhist people coming on, Christian, you know, people from all different spiritual Beautiful. Walks. I love that you do that. Yeah. And, um, and he brought up a good point about, you know, these events and accepting these events. He says, you know, sometimes the event, we just get stuck in it and it becomes the focus of our whole yeah. life. And we make a decision just to never leave. And, yeah. and to do that is to like to relive that horrible day every day, the rest of your life, yeah. you know, yeah. but it's probably a very uh, natural thing to go. No, I, I need revenge. I need whatever. I, and yeah. just hang on. Over. But to forgive that person. And, and it, once I say, I forgive you, that's one thing because that's just verbal, you know, yeah. there's, yeah. there's gotta be a process that comes after that where eventually your head will line up with your heart or whatever, yeah. you know, so yeah. now I have I emotional it. acceptance and I come yeah. move forward, but it takes that commitment first. It takes that. Right you gotta say, okay, I'm gonna forgive that guy. Yeah. And then every day go through the process of doing that. And that's why I want anyone listening to this to go buy your book because you got the process written down in here. Mm -hmm. and yeah. I, why don't you talk a little bit, just a little bit about the LMNOP. Uh, I think you called the ultimate warrior. Uh, Unstoppable warrior. Unstoppable. Unstoppable warrior. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. If you have them, man, I would love that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The, so the LMNOP idea is exactly to create that space and not let the emotions uh, destroy us, but while accepting the presence of it. I mean, mm -hmm. like to this, this case, this woman who lost 
I mean, that's a terrible thing. That's a yeah. horrible thing. It's understandable to feel grief. And yeah. this is another thing. Like I've seen, I've been to some personal development seminars where somebody will talk about losing somebody they love and the leader of the seminar will try to help them get rid of their grief. And I'm like, why are we doing that? Like that's, yeah. grief is hard. It's, there's nothing easy about grieving, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's normal. I mean, if you lose a daughter, if you lose somebody you love, like I've ne- I'm not a parent, I've never lost a kid, but I've lost people I love. And mm-hmm. I know like that grief is normal. So mm-hmm. it's not about making it a go away kind of foundation, right. you know, just to establish that point. Um, and then LMNOP, the idea, so this tool, let, let's, let's navigate that. So L is label. Mm-hmm. Label an emotion. So neuroscience has shown simply by labeling an emotion, it reduces activity in the emotional parts of your brain and increases activity in the part of your brain related focus and awareness. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing there is you're creating a space between the emotion and who you choose to be outside of it just right. by labeling it. So you can say, I'm feeling grief. I'm feeling mm-hmm. sad. I'm feeling fear. Just label the emotion. The second part of the L is especially if you're going through a challenging emotion is language. So let's say you're feeling really low. I might say I'm feeling a little depressed. Now what's your body language is going to reflect that. I might be sitting kind of slouched. And so what you want to do is I'm feeling depressed, but then shift your language, sit up, feel tall. You start feeling a little bit more confident if you shift your language, right? Mm -hmm. So you shift the language. The second part of the LMNOP is M, the meaning. Mm -hmm. What is the meaning I have created to the circumstance that has led to this emotion? And what is the meaning I have created to the emotion? And this is, there's the two parts to meaning, the meaning to the event and the meaning to the emotion. Because Mm -hmm. remember the emotion we don't control Mm -hmm. grieving after we lose somebody that's normal to feel grief. The -hmm. problem is the meanings we create to that emotion. So somebody might feel grief and say, Oh, there's something wrong with me. I should stop grieving or somebody might feel, and I, I work with people with fear, obviously a lot. And they'll say, they'll feel fear and they'll feel like there's something wrong with them for feeling fear. Like as an example, I work with this one guy who was traveling to Iceland on his own and he thought he was weak for feeling scared. It wasn't some crazy expedition, but especially like hearing my stories, he felt like he, what's wrong with him? Why should he feel scared? I go climb mountains in the Himalayas, but I wasn't born this way. I I built that over time. Right. Mm -hmm. So my, my thing with him was like, don't judge the fear. There's nothing wrong with you for feeling fear. It's the first time you're doing this. So you're going to feel fear. Confidence is the result, not the fuel. So what you're doing right now is just getting clear. What is the meanings I have created in my brain? What are the meanings my subconscious assigned that led to this emotion and or that led to the, uh, that led to like the meaning about the emotion itself. So even understanding the meaning to the stimuli. So when I was writing my book on fear, I had a meaning that nobody's going to want to read my book, right? Mm-hmm. That's why I was scared. So mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, fear is showing up because nobody's going to want to read my book. And you're not beating the meaning up. You're not trying to make it wrong or anything. You're just trying to understand what the meaning is. Right. The next step is N. N is kind of the key where you separate yourself from this. The N is it's not me, it's my brain. Yeah. This is everything. Mm-hmm. You are saying to yourself, it's not me. This is not who I am. So I am not grief. I am not fear. I am not sadness. I am not anxiety. I am not these things. I am not depressed. I, I, like this is just my brain going through this stuff, but that's not who I am. So that's mm-hmm. the N is you're separating yourself. It's not me. O is you opt for a new meaning. So this is where you're opting for a new meaning to the circumstance and or to the emotion. So in my case, like, like well, I work, in one case, as one example of this, I worked with this one guy who, who used to feel anxiety every time he would sit down to write on his computer. So he, and the meaning he had created is nobody want to read his thing. Everybody would think it's garbage, this, that, and the other thing, right? Mm-hmm. So opting for a new meaning is people, he started looking at himself and be like, look, I have all this tremendous life experience. He had worked in the Pentagon once, like a lot of amazing stuff he had done. So opting for a new meaning is, you know what? People are going to actually want to read what I have to say. Like I have all this life experience. Now you might not believe it from the core of your soul just yet, but that's okay. You're just opting for a new meaning. Now, when it's something like grieving, you might not need to opt for a new meaning. Like, like there's nothing wrong with grieving. Like you're, what's the meaning you've created? I lost somebody I love. So I'm grieving. 
obviously, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So you kind of, so that's why it's an and or. You opt for a new meaning to the circumstance and or to the emotion. So to the emotion, like somebody feeling that anxiety and this guy, for him, in his case, we were doing both, opting for a new meaning to the circumstance of writing and to the emotion because he would, he would write and then he would get anxiety, like severe anxiety every time he would sit down to write. And he started thinking himself, I'm weak, I'm a piece of shit. This was his self-talk. Mm-hmm. Like, right. I'm pathetic. Why am I feeling anxiety for writing, you know? So I have to be like, look, like that's the problem is not the anxiety. The problem is your self-talk around it. Wow, yeah, so let's absolutely. opt for a new meaning. Now mm-hmm. let's offer a new me. Why am I feeling anxiety when I write? Why am I, why am I feeling scared? I only felt scared about writing my book because I wanted my message to make an impact. So in my case, I felt scared of writing a book on fear because I was, I cared about my message. If yeah. I wasn't scared, I would have just written some garbage and put it out there. Right. Wow. So I'm now, I'm now reframing my fear as an expression of love. I'm reframing mm-hmm. my guilt as an expression of love right? I'm reframing the meaning to that emotion. And mm-hmm. then finally, P is purpose and preemptive strikes. So this is a two, there's two parts. P is purpose where you're doing something in line with that purpose, with your higher self, your conscious self, your divine self, whatever you want to call it, right? That self that is not attached to your brain, your thoughts, your emotions, the higher self, mm-hmm. you're doing something in align with that purpose. So when you go, and this process is not a one-time process. You're constantly mm-hmm. doing this, LMNOP. Yeah. I mean, you're doing this, con- and I do this constantly. I work with people who, you have to keep doing this over and over and over and over again until sure. like something becomes a habit. So P is purpose. So in the case of my, my, my client who was sitting there getting anxiety while writing, usually what he would do is he would come to the computer to write, severe anxiety, sweaty palms, retreat, go watch TV, right? Because TV mm-hmm. is easy, shut off the mind. So yeah. now what we said is, look, I just want you to write for one minute. Even if nothing comes on the screen, I just want you to type something on your computer for one minute. What are we doing there? We're teaching the brain something different. We're mm-hmm. actually physically rewiring the brain. So mm-hmm. doing something in line with the higher purpose, one minute, then two minutes, then five minutes, so on and so forth. So P, something in line with the purpose. And the second part of the P is preemptive strikes, wow. where you preempt, preemptively prepare for obstacles you know will show up. Wow. So in his case, every time he got on the computer, he knew this thing would show up. So he prepared for it. And you actually write down in detail, okay, at 2 p.m., I'm going to get on my computer right. I know I'm going to go through it. So I'm going to go through LMNOP, and I'm going to write for two minutes. And research has shown, they did this interesting study, and multiple different studies have shown the same thing. But one particular study they did with, uh, with uh, elderly patients who were recovering from knee and hip replacement surgery in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, the, and they had them write down in detail how they would recover because they were going through pain. So they right. might say like, at 5 p.m., I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to take 10 steps and then I'm going to sit. So they'd write down in detail how they're going to do certain things. And those who actually did that, they preemptively prepared for the pain, the obstacle was pain. They recovered three times faster than wow. those who did not, than those wow. who just sort of went about it. Uh, so you're preemptively preparing for any obstacle you show up. And you go through this process repeatedly. What mm-hmm. happens is in time, it'll start to rewire your brain. And in time, you'll start to find meaning in the emotion. In time, emotion might even go away. So in time, in this case, like he's no longer even feeling anxiety when he writes, you know, because in time, you're rewiring the entire nature of that, that, that stimuli in the brain. So Man. it's a very powerful tool. And every step is proven by science, like about the it's not me, or the fact that we're meaning-seeking creatures. There's a lot of fascinating studies that go into in the book about how we create meanings. And as I said, even the purpose and preemptive strikes, every step has really been proven over and over again through research about the effectiveness of it. That was, that was what the, the whole process is, is something I'll be handing out your book, that, what you just explained right there, because you're right. You know, it, it teaches, it gives more tools in that toolbox we were just talking about. Exactly. And on one page, and man, I could go down this rabbit hole with philosophers <laughs> and theologians forever. I won't do it today, but on page 62, when you were talking about the opt step of that procedure, yeah. that uh, for even more impact, focus on a meaning based on a meaning of something or someone more yes. greater than yourself. Yes. This releases oxytocin in your brain, which has been shown to enhance our ability to act in the face of 
fear and stress. Yeah. So when people say, you know, my, my belief or my faith in a higher power, it makes me feel different and I and it works. Yeah. There's science. There's science behind it. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I mean, think when you think about your goals in the context of somebody else, something greater than yourself, a higher power, serving a mission. Like today, you know, my mission is helping my human family, not mm -hmm. only through this book, but all the profits are going to charity. I go out there, yeah. I do humanitarian work and post conflict zones. And when I think about helping others, it helps me rise out of my own suffering. I still yeah. go through low moments, man. Of mm -hmm. course, I'm not perfect. I mean, I, I go, I'm a human being, so I go through low moments. Mm -hmm. But when you think about your mission in the context of somebody else, it releases that oxytocin, which is quote unquote known as the love hormone. Mm -hmm. So what happens when oxytocin gets released, it doesn't eliminate the fear, but they've done a lot of studies that shows it helps us move through the fear. Right. It, gives us, it gives us the purpose. So, mm -hmm. And, and they've, they've many interesting studies. They did this other interesting study where they had people going into a job interview and they had half the group think about getting the job, what it would mean for somebody else. Like thinking mm -hmm. about getting the job in the value of how it would serve others. And the right. other half just thought about how getting the job would serve them. Mm -hmm. And like over the, over the board, across the board, the people who thought about their getting the job in something in service of something greater than themselves, mm -hmm. they were rated far better by third party oh, yeah. objective viewers who had no, obviously they don't know, they didn't know who, you know, who was thinking what, but they were rated those far higher in the job interview because they were thinking about their goals and service of something else. So exactly to your point, higher power, serving others in our human family, there's, mm -hmm. there's scientific backing to that. And, and like, and even just spiritually, I mean, it's, oh. it's just. It's just, uh, yeah. it's like, why are we here? I believe we are here. We're, we're, we're in this thing together, man. Absolutely. Uh, we're, we're one human family. So just mm -hmm. spiritually too, to serve others, it just even just feels better to live, you know, live that way. Absolutely. And no one knows that more than people that have been in 12 step rooms. Exactly. Because after a while you're like, you know, this isn't about me anymore. Exactly. My sobriety depends on helping that person over there. Yeah. And during that time, you're not thinking about yourself. Hey, you're thinking about somebody else yeah and, and and that'll get you through almost anything and exactly one of the rabbit holes i went down with my friends who are smarter than me we were talking about that oxytocin i said so do you think for people that believe in god do you think that's how that works he goes or it might be god releasing that oxytocin i said Love dude it. i ain't going down there but <laughs> you know what I ain't up for debate it works <laughs> yeah, yeah the science is behind it yeah and, uh, and i think spirituality and science can coexist man they're not mutually exclusive which is which is in fear of honor you can see is very much both you oh, know because yeah. they're it doesn't have to be science or spirituality nope. and I, I love what your friend said is that what is that god releasing that so whatever our mm -hmm. own beliefs about god and the divine i mean there are certain chemicals that people call like the god chemicals and the mm -hmm. you know so it's all part of, it's all part of that beautiful like oneness of everything man spirituality science god and all of absolutely. it absolutely i was talking yeah. with my friend the other day this would be a good way to wrap this up i was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day and we were talking about the struggles that a lot of people and even to this day myself we go through when it comes in yeah. believing in a god or a power greater than ourselves yeah. he said this and it was very powerful to him he said you know we don't have to believe in we have to believe that if i will believe that i will do certain things on a daily basis mm -hmm my life will get better. So I don't have to believe in, I have to believe that if I do these things, my quality of life what will get lot. better. And then eventually that'll lead me to believing in because something's working that I wasn't able to do it by myself. And I like uh, that. Mm. And then, yeah, that was very, very, very powerful to me. And yeah. what I love about your book is, uh, there's a lot of that in there. There's a lot of yeah. try this, try that. And you really don't have to believe it once you read it because Akshay does a great job of backing it up 
with the science. And so, you know, I go to the gym to work out, I eat certain ways. So my body responds and there's no sense in us not doing that on with our minds too, to make yeah, ourselves yeah. correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, combined with the research, I'm really blessed to say that I've lived it. And I think yeah. that, so, so it's not just, it's not just, I'm not just some guy who read a bunch of books, wrote it. Like I've been no. through it, you know, yeah. and not just yeah. me. I mean, the stories, like you said, the other one, other people I share, I mean, I interviewed this one woman who had been raped when she was six years yeah. old multiple yeah. times, gang raped at 15, horrible things transformed. I mean, I was in tears listening to the strength of this yeah. woman, man. And this other woman who I talk about in the last chapter, which is a kind of to your point and a good way to end this too, is the last chapter is called Love, Faith, and Fear. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I interview this aunt of mine who's paralyzed from the neck down, lost her son to an accidental medical surgery. And man, you meet this woman, she'll be one of the most po- positive women you've ever met in your life. And wow. she has every reason to be, shit, I can't imagine being as positive as she has in her state. Paralyzed from the neck down, living like mm-hmm. whole life in a bed like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, when I met her, she had actually broken both her femurs because the maid who was taking care of her accidentally dropped her. Uh. And she broke, and she, and she feels pain. She feels pain. She just can't like, uh, she can't do anything about it because she can't move. And so, but you meet her and she is just has this tremendous faith in, in, in a higher power and something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 and I, and it's, it's so, it's mind blowing to me that kind of human spirit to transcend our own suffering and transcend our own pain. And that's why I end the book with saying love, faith, and fear, because people often say that faith and fear are opposites or love mm-hmm. and fear are opposites. Like people often say that love is the opposite of fear. And I think that's a huge misconception. Yeah. Like I always like to say that fear is not the enemy of love. Fear is an expression of love. Absolutely. Why am I scared about losing my life? Because I value my life. And I had yeah. a time in my life, man, that I wasn't scared of dying. Uh-huh. I like when I went to Iraq, I didn't care if I died because I didn't value my life as much, man. Yeah. And why yeah. am I scared of losing people I love? Because I love them. Why am I scared of writing a bad book? Because I love my message, you mm-hmm. know? So, and same thing, fear is not the opposite of faith. Faith and fear can coexist. Right. You know, fear and faith can coexist as one. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it takes faith to move through fear. Right, you know, right. uh, and they, so they, they actually, uh, that's, that's the whole ethos of fear nirvana is that fear and nirvana are not the opposites. They can, and they, I believe that they must coexist. And by, by bringing them together as one is the essence of a spiritual awakening, man. Man, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, listen, it's, a lot of people don't know this cause I'm not sure when I'll put this out there, but this Memorial weekend. Yeah. I understand the difference between Memorial and Veterans Day. So I'll thank you for your service. And what a lot of people don't know who haven't read your book was you served this country. You weren't even a citizen of this country at the time. That's right. Yeah. I especially thank you for your service, but your book, and it was certainly, uh, it was certainly a catalyst was, was the loss of your your fallen brother. You know, the the guilt complex that you had on on Memorial day weekend. Did you want to say any message to any of the, anyone out there today this weekend yeah you know the uh, i'll leave you with a quote from a wiser man than myself he wrote this book when bad things happen to good people harold kushner i don't know if you wrote that book but a very powerful book mm-hmm. and he says uh one of the things he says is the dead depend on us for their redemption and their immortality wow i'll say I that again you. the dead depend on us for their redemption and their immortality so like you said memorial day is about those who've lost and you know, we've all, uh, well, a lot of us have lost somebody. And as a, you know, uh, if you're thinking in the memorial day of the people we've lost in the military, people we've lost is that for those of us now, you know, like now I look at my own life and I don't have the, I don't have the right or the luxury to waste my life drinking a bottle a day. Like I got, mm-hmm. like, if I have to honor those we've lost, honor, honor my friend, honor all those we've lost, man. And, uh, it's on me to make, to do something meaningful with this life, to earn this life that I've been gifted. And when I say gifted, it's happened multiple times that I actually found out when I came back from Iraq from my staff sergeant, that my vehicle drove over an active bomb 
And for wow. some reason, it didn't, it didn't explode. I don't know wow. what, it, uh, for some reason, it explode. I don't know what that all means in the grand scheme of things, but what I do know is that if I'm here, I got to earn, like, I'm, I don't have a light, right to waste this life. And, and so for all those we've lost, they depend on us, those living, to honor them and to, uh, to live this life in service of something greater in honor of all those we love and all those we've lost. Man, that's beautiful. And you are certainly earning it, friend. And uh, I hope, Appreciate you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be emailing you again when I get people on here. I said, you know what? Oprah's got a uh, Dr. Phil. I'm going to throw a little Dr. Akshay on these people whenever I get some person. I'd love to be able to call you back and visit about particular cases, but you're certainly earning it. And uh, I thank you, you for your book. I thank you for your service. And I really thank you for coming on and being on my podcast. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. All right. And there you have it. That was Akshay Nanavati author of the book Fearvana. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. First thing I want to say about that real quick, real quick. I was literally mic drop, one of my, the mic drop podcast, Mike Ritland's podcast, one of my favorite all-time podcasts. He's got a huge following. If I could get 1,000th of his following, I'd be high-fiving everybody in Wembley. Um, anyway, Akshay's in that type of demand. So nobody was more surprised than me when he agreed to come on this up-and-coming wannabe podcast. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. This guy's been on Fox. He's been a speaker at Harvard University. Um, he does a lot to promote the book because he, he, he believes in, 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 in what he's teaching, and he believes in the information. He believes in the, in the book that he put together. Um, I would encourage you to go read it for that. If you can't do it for that, I would encourage you to go read it, uh, to thank a man who went and served this country in Iraq when he wasn't even a citizen of this country. So there's a reason. More importantly, most important reason is I can't think of a better way than to honor his friend. Honor his friend, the person that Akshay said that he was going to go earn this life for. You want to help him earn a life? Buy the book. Keep his name alive. Bruce Lee said you want to be immortal? Live a life worth remembering. Every time someone buys one of the books, we'll remember his friend and his sacrifice. That ought to be a good enough reason right there. Um, I'm going to encourage you to go to Akshay's website, get some more information um, about the book there, about what he's doing, about his research. Fearvana.com, Fearvana.com. Go check it out. Um, if you don't want to do any of that, if you don't want to, I don't want to, Bubba. Okay. Just do this. Go to Amazon, look up his book, and give him a good review. How hard's that? If he gets some more reviews, we can get him on uh, Oprah, some of these more prominent shows. If you want to help someone out, that's a pretty easy way. Give him some good reviews. Speaking of reviews, if you want to give us one so we can keep growing, getting more guests on here, I'd be appreciative. A couple people I want to thank for helping me put this podcast together. First of all, we got Scott and Tony at Wembley Mac. They keep me plugged in and running. I'm a Tecmo Igmo. Um, I'm over there hassling them all the time, and they've always been very helpful. I'm appreciative of their time. Chuck O'Connor, my guitar teacher, Chuck, puts up with my horrible guitar playing. Um, that's ought to be a reason enough. Um, but he's also a phenomenal teacher. If you can't do them in person, he'll do them on Zoom, which is the way I prefer to go. Awesome. Plus, he plays locally. Um, if anyone out there needs MP3 written and composed just for them, I'd highly encourage Chuck. He put mine together, and I, I'm statted with it. Um, 
you can reach Chuck at Chuck at c-jet.net. That's Chuck at c-jet.net. Um, also, we have a website, BubbaNorton.com. I'd encourage you to go there and got a blog there where we keep up with all the guests we had on the show. You can go find recent episodes that we've had and what's coming up. And also, there's a donate button. I'm broke. Been tough times. Anyway, any any contribution we can get, we also do intervention work, sober transport. We help get people treatment. We help give them support after treatment. If you want to be a part of that, we'd be eternally grateful. And next week, I have a good friend of mine, Scott, coming on here. Scott's been sober 11 years. When he got out of rehab, found out he had cancer. Got cancer under control, had a heart attack, had three heart attacks eventually. Uh, had a bankruptcy because he couldn't work because of cancer and three heart attacks, and that wasn't enough. He ended up having to take guardianship of his daughter's kids. And not only did he find a way to stay sober, that wouldn't be enough to make it a guest on this program. He found a way to really get some good sobriety and uh, used all that, used all the tools that were taught and took all that adversity and used it to become a better person. And he's a really inspiration to me. I hope you'll come listen to him. I think it'll be worth your time. Until then, we'll be right here. This is Bubba Norton. Thanks for tuning in, and we are keeping it real.